0: This is The River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. When I was thinking of advertisers for this podcast, well, I didn't think of a car dealership. And yet, I have two vehicles, both purposely purchased to get me to the rivers. I want to introduce you to someone, Jay Weibel. Jay grew up in Fort Collins started kayaking the Poudre River at age 12, and his first day on the Poudre this year was a snowy day in March. Jay is the owner of Fort Collins Nissan and Fort Collins Kia. Jay, what do you want to tell us about the Poudre River? The Poudre River and
1: all rivers have a limited square footage of repairing habitat, that critical ribbon of green, of trees, shrubs, grasses that briefly extend out from the riverbanks. This repairing habitat is critical for the river itself, for the terrestrial and aquatic animals, and for the beauty of our landscape. We must work to protect this sacred square footage of riparian habitat. My name is Jay Weibel. I am the owner of Collins Nissan and Focons Kia. I love the Poudre River and I'm working to protect it.
2: The idea of actually going in with dynamite on a wild segment of a wild and scenic river is something that I would say is inconsistent and would have a direct and adverse effect on Uh, wild and scenic river
0: this episode is the second in a set of two about the greenback cutthroat trout its elusive history and the modern recovery plans being implemented to prevent this fish from going extinct the first episode is titled part one something fishy and i do recommend you listen to that before you listen to this one That first episode explored the story of the greenback and how it was impacted by European-Americans, its hideout up Bear Creek for 100-plus years, and how modern fish scientists clarified the biogeography of current and historic populations of the greenback and all cutthroats in the state of Colorado. This second episode picks up where the last one ended, at Bear Creek with the 100% pure greenback takes a look at active recovery work, and explores the Poudre River and the massive recovery plan to install the greenback in this wild and scenic river, and considers the genetic health and diversity of this fish. That project has many of its own hurdles looming on its path to implementation of the seemingly simple yet totally complicated and challenging project. To start off, we will hear from Dr. Kevin Rogers, a doctor of fish science who is a greenback cutthroat researcher for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. You also heard from him in the first episode. Here he is explaining what happened with the 100% pure greenback after it was discovered up Bear Creek.
3: First we realized that okay these Bear Creek fish are special and so we went out and uh, collected some from the wild brought them to a hatchery actually two hatcheries and raised them up so that to use his broodstock to establish the first population in the wild which was Zimmerman Lake. So we've got a broodstock wild broodstock at Zimmerman Lake and then a captive broodstock at the Leadville National Fish Hashery. So that let us to have a broodstock to where we could go to if we started a new population somewhere by reclaiming habitat that we could
0: then come back in and stock pure greenbacks into that. From these brood stocks that originated out of Bear Creek, the Greenback Recovery Team has implemented recovery projects in Colorado for the Greenback that are in the South Platte River basin, that basin that is the true home of the Greenback. This is Boyd Wright, native aquatic species biologist with Colorado Parks and Wildlife.
4: The idea was to get these fish replicated in a few stream populations on the landscape into their native range in the South Platte basin, and for that we chose Dry and Herman Gulch, which are both in the Clear Creek watershed, um, both uh, right there. They sit right on the east side of the Eisenhower Tunnel, flowing into Clear Creek from the north, north of I-70. And the reason we chose those, so, you know, when you reintroduce cutthroats, usually it's into a stream that's already inhabited by non-native trout. And indeed, Dry Gulch and Herman Gulch both were. And so you have to completely eradicate the non native trout. And then you also have to make sure it's secure from being reinvaded by placing a fish migration barrier at the downstream end that keeps those non natives from moving back into the system. And Dry and Herman Gulch, very conveniently, you know, usually we have to build these barriers and, and they cost, they take a lot of time and permitting and they cost a lot of money. But Dry and Herman Gulch both pass through a culvert under I 70 that's not passable by trout Um, and so that right off the bat made it something we could do pretty quickly uh, because we didn't have to go through this this stage of building a barrier. Um, And so those those populations were um, reclaimed, meaning that we successfully eradicated all the non-native trout in 2015 and 2016 and were first stocked in 2016 and 2017. And so now that's that's where we currently sit. We've got three populations in the South Platte River Basin. One is at Zimmerman Lake. That's our broodstock. Um, the other two are Herman Gulch and Dry Gulch. And then we're also working on two bigger projects. One of them is in the Poudre River Basin, and it's called George Creek. And then we're working on a similar one in Rock Creek. And then in addition to that is the Poudre Headwaters project. And that one will be a major lift. That's going to be 37 miles of stream. So just to put it all into perspective, once the the Poudre Headwaters project is completed, that's going to bring the total miles up to 69.6 miles of stream. Our immediate focus was just getting these populations to replicate on the landscape and smaller manageable streams, and now we're trying to get them into these bigger systems where they'll have really robust populations that are resilient to you know, Stochastic events and, and potentially climate change.
0: This new greenback recovery is going to happen on the Poudre River up in its headwaters. The full formal name of the Poudre is Cache Lapoudre. Poudre is spelled P O U D R E. In French, Cache poudre means hide the powder, as in the gunpowder. It goes back to the earlier days of European explorers doing things in this Poudre River valley. Here is Evan Stafford at American Whitewater with a landscape based description of the Poudre River.
5: I'm Evan Stafford. I'm the National Communications Director for American Whitewater. Uh, I now live a few hundred yards from the river. The Poudre, it actually originates in uh, Rocky Mountain National Park. It's one of the longer drainages in Colorado. The technical source for the river is uh Poudre Lake, which is a very small lake. The Poudre is essentially uh, the sister drainage to the uppermost headwaters of the Colorado River. Um, they're basically kind of back-to-back. The Poudre flows east, the Colorado River flows west. So it starts in Rocky Mountain National Park, kind of builds steam from small creeks. It has a a quite wide drainage through a a Forest Service Alpine Wilderness Area. Eventually kind of forms the the main stem of the river that, that flows along Highway 14 for approximately 50 miles through just an extremely scenic canyon, flows out of the canyon onto the plains, and that's right where Fort Collins is, just beyond the mouth of the canyon. And then it heads southeast out into the plains and and eventually meets up with the South Platte. It's it's got a a very large basin compared to the other nearby front range rivers, most of which are, are actually creeks. And it's an extremely scenic and beautiful river. It's the only designated wild and scenic river in Colorado.
0: That is true. The Poudre is the only river in Colorado that has federal wild and scenic status. Here's Jennifer Back, who specializes in wild and scenic rivers.
2: I am a hydrologist in the National Park Service Water Resources Division. I also sit on what's called an interagency Wild and Scenic River Council.
0: The pooter that's protected under the wild status is the upper headwaters. Can you explain why it was given that wild status in this upper 30-mile stretch?
2: So there's three different classifications of a wild and scenic river. A wild and scenic river can be a wild river, a scenic river, and it can be a recreational river. So a wild river is a river with the most uh, primitive corridor and and the least amount of development in it. You're protecting what is there and trying to enhance that condition. The Kashlaputa River starts in these very small little uh, wet areas in the park because it is in that headwater area in a high elevation montane kind of ecosystem Uh, relatively undeveloped, although there was, you know, certain activities like mining and timber in the 18 and 1900s, but relatively pristine in in many ways. So the headwaters of the Kashlaputa River are still fairly wild. There's, you know, there are some foot trails, but there are no roads that approach the river corridor itself. And so you have to hike to get in and and there's very little development around the, the river in that part of the designated reaches.
0: The greenback is truly native to this Poudre High country, and this recovery project offers a significant increase in the return of aquatic habitat to the greenback. While many agencies are collaborating on this project, the United States Forest Service is the lead. Matt Fairchild is managing this project for the Forest Service.
6: I'm the forest fisheries biologist for the Arapaho and Roosevelt National Forest and Pawnee National Grassland. My profession is really an aquatic ecologist.
0: As you see it, Matt, can you tell us about the project to restore the greenback cutthroat trout to the Poudre headwaters?
6: Essentially, we're aiming to restore greenback cutthroat trout to over 37 miles of stream habitat in the upper extent of the Cache River. 37 miles of, of habitat is is big. That's a, that's a that's a lot of a lot of water to to reclaim and restore. You know, the t- tried and true tested approach that works well is to isolate a patch of habitat with a fish barrier, then remove non-native fish from those areas upstream of the barrier, and then reintroduce the native fish that you're you're aiming to recover. So we commonly refer to that as isolation management. And so it works well when a robust barrier can be found or built. So for the Pooter Headwaters Project, the isolation management will rely on a total of six barriers when I say Kashaputa River, that starts right at the outlet of Poor Lake. The river, so to speak, is literally a foot wide up there. By the time you get 20, 25 miles downriver, it's captured and gathered up all this other flow from all these feeder streams So all these streams are feeding in, and so all of that habitat, it's all connected. There are fish and individuals that will move around between those populations but they really can be seen as distinct populations. But when you have these groups of populations that are all connected, as a conservation biologist, we call that a metapopulation. So it's this series of connected populations. And for conservation, we really want to aim for something like that because if some kind of fire or a flood disturbance affects one of those populations, it can be refounded from those other connected populations. So it's really resilient to all the throws that Mother Nature could bring to, you know, a particular watershed where you're fairly certain that once you have that full area reclaimed, other than managing humans, it should be relatively hands-off management for the recovery of this species. Literally a stronghold.
0: Isolation management. As Matt Fairchild just explained, that is the method that will be used here in the Poudre headwaters. Barriers come first, then comes the removal of a non-native fish, And finally, when the barrier is in place and the non-native fish are all gone, the greenbacks will be reintroduced. This is pretty straightforward, yet each component presents its own challenge. First, let's look at the barriers. A factor going on here is that the greenback must live alone, only with other greenbacks for it to remain a 100% pure greenback, and also so it won't be eaten. Rainbow trout and brook trout are both invasive, non-native fish in the streams of Colorado, and both are present in the Futa River. The greenback cutthroat can and has mated with the rainbow trout, and this results in a hybridized greenback. The brook trout will simply eat the greenback's new fry each year, which means they will eat their young and eventually greatly reduce the greenback population or entirely eliminate it. The rainbow trout can't jump all that high, so the barriers don't have to be so big for them. It's the brook trout that can jump. So the barrier height really matters here.
6: So if you imagine, if you've got a bathtub... There's a foot of water in it, okay. Yeah, can that fish jump um, four feet up? Um, probably not. But if you make your bathtub three feet deep, where there's kind of a, a running head start, so to speak, for a fish to literally swim really fast from the bottom of the pool and jump in a burst speed kind of pattern where they're sprinting up the water column, they can make pretty big leaps. So we're using a series of criteria that look at um, that probability. We're also Particularly at the Wadden Scenic River barrier sites, we're actually running a fish movement study at, at one of the waterfalls right now to understand the timing, the size of fish, uh, the flow rates when fish can navigate that waterfall. You know, it really helps us hone in our design for creating an effective fish barrier.
0: These can be man made barriers, these can be places that human work is added to a natural barrier or these can be strictly natural barriers in the river. Can you explain the criteria that is also needed or that has to be met to create these barriers?
6: Within the wilderness setting and the wild and scenic river setting, the barriers have to mimic uh, normal and natural occurring vents. The water, when it comes over, it still needs to look like a waterfall. When it comes over, it's not like, oh, we're going to build a concrete dam on top of this waterfall. They can't create unusual hazards or interfere with reasonably expected recreational use. You know, so extreme whitewater kayaking. Uh, Construction materials have to be kept natural in appearance, placed in locations and positions and quantities that mimic natural conditions so as to not affect the scenic quality of those sites.
0: There is a challenge with the most downstream barrier, the barrier that is the most important, as it is the barrier between all other non-native fish in the river, The first challenge here is that the barrier is a natural waterfall, and across most of it, it has the needed six feet of height to prevent fish from jumping up. But because it is a natural fall, a few places can allow downstream brook trout to jump up the falls at spots lower than six feet. So modifications are needed.
6: That lower barrier, that site was selected 10 years ago. And so, you know, it was clearly stated in the record of decision by both agencies that this lower barrier needed to be evaluated to see if it was a complete barrier for fish. So we've done our first year of study on it using fish. Are fish able to navigate up through the waterfall? And the answer is yes. That makes our job a little bit more difficult now, but also gives us some some certainty around, okay, we can apply some published tools out there of, of brook trout jumping success models to really help us hone in on, okay, well, fish made it up this jump height barrier here, how do we, you know, modify some of those features, be it blasting or some other method or approach to create a slightly higher waterfall jump height on some of these seams? We're kind of using a, a combination approach of trying to get our six foot waterfall height that we have constantly over all these you know modeled water levels in that pool downstream of the water. We're looking at that. We're looking at the tagged fish study, where we have tagged fish in the in the river downstream of the waterfall, and how many of those and what time they can move up. It's not a cookbook approach, you know. We're we're taking a fairly fairly measured approach of how do we look at these things in concert with one another, so that we are fairly certain that we only need to do one suite of modifications, because it's going to be arduous to go through the permitting. we're doing something in the wild and scenic river we need to be incredibly careful with what we're doing in the wild and scenic river so that we're not affecting those wild and scenic river values
0: you just heard matt fairchild discuss the research clarifying the need for barrier modifications one of the methods of modification involves the use of dynamite from what i understand this use of dynamite is not like a bomb going off but is placed in drilled holes with exact applications
6: it's precise Uh, in application where there are holes that are drilled out along fracture lines uh, of the bedrock so that you can basically scale off sections of rock in series and the site still has that natural appearance.
0: This need for dynamite gets attention from two angles. The first is that this barrier literally sits at the agency boundary between Rocky Mountain National Park and the United States Forest Service. The boundary and the respective regulations smear across this area. Yes, remember that this is a wild and scenic river. Here again, I speak with Jen Back from the National Park Service and the Wild and Scenic Rivers Council about the option of blasting to design this barrier. Let's talk about these barriers then. The bottom one is at this location that is referred to as starter fluid by the very skilled kayaking community that boats up there. And there's there's consideration of drilling and possible dynamite use at some level this rapid this waterfall this this barrier will be reshaped from its natural stance to, to build into this barrier that meets the needs for these fish to not be able to jump a certain height how does the wild and scenic rivers act this management plan you all on the council how do you also address that as a alteration and a change to the the natural circumstances of the river
2: the One location where we're talking about that's challenging or more complex is an area where the river itself forms the boundary of the park. And so on one side of the, on one bank, you're in the park and on the other bank, you're in the forest. So what happens there is is going to be interesting. The way it was originally described to me was more of using the natural fall and and topography of the river channel itself. But the idea of actually going in in with dynamite on a wild segment of a wild and scenic river is something that I would say is is inconsistent and and would have a direct and adverse effect on a wild and scenic river. It's easy for me to say that sitting in my office, you know, um, not looking at the river right now. That is where it really will be challenging, I think, is, is when we get down to the actual design. And that's something that we haven't seen yet.
0: An important point to make here is that these landscapes in both the National Park and the Forest Service are managed as wilderness, which has a very strict set of regulations that do not allow mechanized travel or tools. And so the tools allowed for building the barriers are somewhat limited. There are ways to navigate those regulations.
6: We do have procedures within both the park service and forest service for determining what the minimum tool to do X, you know, so what's the minimum tool for doing this? Most of the audience could understand in terms of hiking on a trail in the wilderness. So when, trail managers go in to maintain those trails, the minimum tool, even though a chainsaw would be a heck of a lot faster to go in and buck logs out of the trail, the minimum tool that's been determined for a lot of trail maintenance, outside of emergency situations, is a crosscut saw that's non-mechanized, and so you go in and use that. So blasting is one of those things that's been around for a long time. You know, it is considered a minimum tool for each of these barriers. We'll we will be going through those procedures for each of the construction projects.
0: What does Fort Collins Nissan offer? Nissan makes full-size trucks, powerful SUVs, full-size and sporty electric cars, all of which can carry you and your gear to the river. Nissan trucks can load your gear and they can pull your boat to the ramp. The full-size Titan XD is a 5.8 ton truck with strong towing capacity. A Nissan Leaf electric car can load kayaks on a roof rack and has a range of about 150 miles per charge. No gas, just plug it in. Jay, as a career car salesman, What are your thoughts on this Nissan electric Leaf?
1: Nissan was first to come to market with a mass-produced electric car. Nissan has done research that's showing that 90% of urban drivers drive less than 40 miles a day. So from that stance, this is a great option for folks who want to be less dependent on fossil fuels. Also, today there are smart chargers that allow you to charge your cars at low peak periods and have a low cost to charge. I have talked to one customer who states he can actually charge his car for free when he charges off the smart charger during the night when there is an overabundance of renewable energy from wind turbines. Also just announced is the all-wheel drive 300 mile range electric self-driving car with ProPilot 2.0, which is a eyes-on, hands-off driving experience. Nissan is calling it the Aria. This electric vehicle will be available in early 2021.
0: The other attention the modification of the natural barrier gets is from the boating community. This barrier is a known rapid with the whitewater boating community and changes to the rapid are not in their interest. Here again is Evan Stafford from American Whitewater. Evan works nationally for American Whitewater and has lived and boated with the pooter for over 20 years.
5: This stretch of the upper headwaters in the pooter is known as the Big South Fork of the Castle Pooter and it's, it's widely recognized as one of, if not the best wilderness Class 5 paddling reach in Colorado. It's an incredibly important resource, therefore, for the paddling community. And the Forest Service recognizes that. It's the reason they've really been open and willing to work with American Whitewater and other interested members of the paddling community. In that openness, they have discussed Potential plans for the fish barrier at one specific rapid known as starter fluid. It's essentially the very first significant rapid on this stretch of river.
0: Here again is Matt Fairchild with the United States Forest Service.
6: I had conversations with Evan on some of that. What's the line that people run? Because it's, it's a very technical rapid. There's really only one way to run it. It's really the centerline flow that the boaters are taking. We don't really have vision of, of really changing that at all, that centerline flow. That's critically important as we look at this is that we're, we're really wanting to make sure that we're not affecting how people have been and will use the river in the future.
5: I've seen their latest uh, iteration of the plan to modify the rapid. Their intention there is To create as strong of a fish barrier as possible. This is one of the places they have enlisted the paddling community's help in trying to create a plan that would not disturb the recreation aspect of that stretch of river, which would include making that rapid still runnable with the modifications they're proposing. Um, so meaning that you can still paddle it and also that it wouldn't impair the other values that are associated with that reach, the scenic, the historic, the natural values.
0: Does American Whitewater have a stance on this pooter Greenback Recovery Project?
5: American Whitewater fully supports the reintroduction of, of native species. We use our protection and especially our restoration program in an attempt to support the proliferation of native species and and kind of survival of native species along, you know, river stretches across the country, especially in the western U.S. The uh, consensus among uh, my colleagues at American Whitewater is that any significant modification of that rapid as a barrier is probably not consistent with the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act or the Wilderness Act, and that there are potential other natural fish barriers that would not require modification that have not been explored.
0: The second component of the isolation management practice that will be used here on the pooter is the removal of non-native fish. That will happen after all the barriers are in place. I continue speaking with Matt Fairchild from the United States Forest Service about this part of the greenback recovery project. Part of the project will be to create a so-called maybe a sanctuary part of the upper mountains that are off limits to other fish. And that's going to take some work on the part of humans to do this. Can you explain how the various fish species will be separated and even eliminated?
6: It's important to understand that the non-native fish must be removed from the system. Brook trout essentially outcompete and prey upon young greenback cutthroat trout, and eventually, over a handful of years, um, it causes a complete elimination of greenback because greenback cutthroat trout can't replace themselves, and the fish population dwindles to zero. And then, to eliminate fish, uh, essentially, yeah, we remove fish, and that that will occur through a variety of you know a few different approaches. Uh, one particular approach that we've had some discussion about is including some angler harvest. you know, where some harvest limits are are lifted for a period of years prior to actually going in and doing the full, um, full removal so the public can participate in part of that. Another fish removal effort would be uh, salvaging uh, some of the small cutthroat trout populations, the Colorado River cutthroat trout. There are a handful of locations uh, within the project boundary with, particularly within the park um, where there's a few vestiges of these small cutthroat trout populations that are pure, but they're pure Colorado River cutthroat. So they hold some conservation value and we want to salvage those animals and take them back over to a site where it's suitable for their native range. Um, And then lastly is the chemical treatment of waters that will essentially kill the remaining fish. We have to have zero 100% effective elimination of those non-native fish because just a handful, they can repopulate and eventually wipe out um, all the conservation effort.
0: Can you explain in more detail the fish removal, the methods, the details of the operations?
6: People have tried to do the mechanical removal with electrofishing or nets. There is always a fraction, 10% or 20% of the population, that you're going to miss. You're just not going to get these Labeled pesticides. They're called pisicides. The one that will likely be used here is called rotenone. Rotenone, originally, it's a plant derived chemical. That chemical is now synthetically manufactured and put into different formulations of rotenone. It's a drip substance that, at very low concentrations, is very lethal to fish. It shuts down their cellular respiration, and so they die, which is unfortunate because that's. Certainly not what I got in the business of doing, you know, when i ascribe to be an aquatic ecologist, but it is definitely a, a very useful tool in this circumstance. So there's this plume that's coming down. It's hours long. And then uh, there's a neutralizing agent that's applied at the tail end of where your treatment area is for that particular application. They usually take a day to three days to implement, depending on the rate of flow. The state has led a lot of these efforts in the projects that I've helped. We'll do a treatment one day or one operational period and then follow that up with the subsequent treatment that same week. And then we'll let it rest till the next spring. And then we'll go in and monitor, do some electrofishing. Uh, we now also use some eDNA methods where we filter water and search for the DNA of the, the target species that we're aiming to, to eliminate. And once we can confirm absence um, from those areas, then we start the efforts to to reintroduce and restock uh, with a variety of age classes of fish.
0: The challenge of rebuilding the fish population of this greenback is obviously complex. There are the barriers and making sure they work, and also making sure they don't change a river. Then the killing off of the non-greenbacks and making sure they are 100% gone. And then, go back to the story from the previous episode about the history of the greenback and how it was moved out of its native basin and unintentionally hybridized with other cutthroats in the state, and with the introduced rainbow trout. It is a mess. Luckily, there was this bastion of greenbacks up Bear Creek. Remember those? The fish that survived above the waterfall on Bear Creek for 100 years? The truly genetically pure and original greenback? That is the genetic model that Colorado Parks and Wildlife is breeding in hatcheries to propagate the greenbacks in all of these streams that are being prepped for the greenback's return to its native range. But even here, there are concerns around the genetic quality and diversity of the greenback because that batch of fish that survived for 100 plus years up Bear Creek? Well, it's thought that it was just originally one or two barrels of fish, and after 100 years of natural breeding up there, the depth of genetic diversity gets thin. To understand more about this thin genetic diversity, I again speak with Dr. Kevin Rogers of Colorado Parks and Wildlife. What a very simplistic way to put this. Would it be appropriate to say that these fish are inbred?
3: Um, Yeah. Yeah. And it it predates our sampling of Bear Creek to develop the broodstock too. I mean, we're operating under the assumption that Bear Creek above the waterfall barrier was fishless historically, and that that population, since it's outside of the South Platte Basin, was actually founded by stocking. And so the question then is, you know, we know there's this guy who homesteaded in Jones Park and built this fish pond. but the question is, you know, how many fish did he stock in it? Probably not a lot. And then how many of those fish that he stocked actually got out and established the population in the stream? So the establishment of that population was likely limited to few individuals and then you know we're sampling from that it is true that the those bear creek fish show the least genetic diversity of any population we've looked at at this point there's presumably consequences to that genetic bottleneck that they've gone through maybe more than one bottleneck, the bottleneck when the population got established. And then at least when we went in and sampled just a subset of that population to establish the broodstock, who knows, there could be other bottlenecks, you know, low flow periods or something in the past that we don't know about that, you know, further restricted that population. So no question, there's not a lot of genetic diversity there.
0: You know, I think about the Cameron Peak fire that's been burning and the things we don't know about that, the impact of that fire down the road. You know, the question I come up with is that do these factors, these, these differences, put the fish at risk to things like big fires and the runoffs, climate change, drought?
3: The more genetic diversity you have, the better able you are to deal with challenges that crop up, whether it's disease issues or other stuff. That doesn't mean that you can't persist if you don't have that genetic diversity. And you know, the biggest problem we have getting cutthroats established in this day and age is is competition with non-native brook trout. And so, clearly, that's the goal of that big project is to eliminate the non-native salmonids. And you know, I think these Bear Creek fish will do just fine in that setting, uh, if as long as they don't have those non-native competitors. And then question is yeah with changing climate we're going to see more and bigger fires and with fires you get these ash flows that materialize afterwards and can wipe out big chunks of the population but part of the reason for the sort of ambitious magnitude of the project is just for that reason so you know if a fire if you just have a population that occupies one mile of stream a fire can go through and wipe out that population Whereas if that population occupies 30 miles of stream with lots of different tributaries, it's much more unlikely that a wildfire will be able to wipe out the entire population. So yeah, it may, may suppress or exterminate a portion of it, say a tributary or something like that, but then that can be repopulated by adjacent tributaries or, or the main stem. And that's sort of the basis of this metapopulation dynamics where you have portions of the population winking out that are immediately reseeded by other portions that remain. And that makes for a much more stable you know, and more valuable conservation population, one that is you know, a little more robust to the effects of a changing climate.
0: Do you have any other options here? Do you have any other tools to add genetic diversity to the greenback?
3: So at this point, we're operating under the assumption that there's just there is only one greenback population, and that's the Bear Creek fish. And that's the challenge: is that you know we don't have, you know, it's not like we can just cross in some other greenbacks to promote genetic diversity because this is the only population we have. So this is what we got, you know. Unless we're willing to outcross them with a different lineage, which we're not willing to do in the wild, at least, or at least not initially. You know, I think our goal is to try and replicate the Bear Creek population in a number of different places so that we can secure that piece of the genetic diversity puzzle out there. And then beyond that, maybe we'd entertain the idea of doing some outcrossing to promote genetic diversity.
0: Can you speak to how this fish is on the brink? This fish is on the brink of extinction and you have a very small window genetically and probably in a time frame as well to... To repair this fish to the to its habitat, and put that up against the context of the option is that it just perishes from the earth, and then that that genetic strand of fish is gone.
3: I guess I feel like we're fortunate to still have this thing because really, um, you know, we we thought it was gone in the '30s, and then thought we had it back, but in fact, the fish that we had identified were cutthroats from the west slope that had been established east of the divide, but then. Fortunate to find this little little pocket that still represents what evolved here historically, and uh, so that's pretty exciting. I guess I'm pretty optimistic now that we're going to be okay. We're good at recovering cutthroat trout. We've got a lot of experience in that regard, and already in just the short window since the discovery of this fish, you know, we've got it in a number of different places in the wild. You know, so I'm optimistic that this will be something we can have for future generations to enjoy i mean there will be setbacks certainly this fire up the cameron peak fire is one of those setbacks if we've got you know critical areas of that project that get burned over and ash flows that wipe out some of the habitat so we'll keep our fingers crossed but uh, we're fortunate that we've already got them in a number of different places in disparate locations so they're already more secure
0: now than they were just five six years ago as I see this project, this whole greenback recovery project from Bear Creek to the Pooter, it is complex in its solution, and while the source of the problem may also seem complex, I see the source of the problem as more simple. Just simply humans causing a disturbance to a landscape a few hundred years ago. A perfect landscape. A disturbance intended to create the new world, the new life, the pursuit of escape and freedom, and in that path was The greenback. And here we are today with a different group of humans, a highly skilled group of people who care immensely about preserving a creature and working hard to restore this ancient fish, this greenback cutthroat trout. In that complexity of rebuilding a fish and its habitat, I can barely avoid wondering how many creatures and landscapes on this planet need this same care, and it becomes hard to fathom it all. We will close with a short reading, a reading that is the end of the Cormac McCarthy book, The Road. It is read for you by Brian Maddox, my good friend who keeps his eye on the Poudre River and fishes and boats it often.
4: Once there were brook trout in the streams and the mountains. You could see them standing in the amber current where the white edges of their fins wimpled softly in the flow. They smelled of moss in your hand, polished and muscular and torsional. On their backs were vermiculate patterns that were maps of the world and its becoming maps and mazes of a thing which could not be put back not be made right again in the deep glens where they lived all things were older than man and they hummed of mystery
0: Content editing and production is done by me, Sam Carter. Audio production is done by Ezekiel Buhanda. All music is written and produced by Diabolical Sound Platoon. A cutthroat-sized thank you goes out to all of the guests on this show. We are always looking for more great show topics and leads on River Culture. You can reach us by email, hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. This
1: is Jay Weibel, owner of Fort Collins Nissan and Fort Collins Kia. Why do I enjoy river boating and why do I let myself get beat up while boating? For me, it keeps me humble and tough. It revitalizes me. I feel better. I want to personally thank you for supporting the Pooter River and for listening to these shows. Let's protect the Pooter.
5: I can't jump very well. There's a, It's a, it's a choose-your-own-adventure from here. And,
0: and, and a A, a terror...
2: I have several bicycles. There's a couple of athletic fish.
0: Museum quality greenback cutthroat trout.